Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. I've been thinking a lot lately about a one-term Republican president who actually had a lot of success. Of course, I'm talking about George H.W. Bush and the ending of the Cold War. And to talk about this, I wanted to bring on my colleague, public policy fellow at the Wilson Center, Diana Villers Negroponte. She has recently written a book, Master Negotiator, James A. Baker's Role at the End of the Cold War. Diana, welcome to the Need to Know podcast. Thank you. Aaron, I'm pleased to be with you. Well, I, I, I kind of teased it a little bit in, this, in the beginning here, but Bush is often overlooked in the winning of the Cold War narrative. And Reagan's work has really taken much of the pride of place in the, the, the public recollection of, of this history. But it was Bush that had all this happen during his administration with the Berlin Wall falling and the German reunification and Soviet Union collapsing. So... Was Bush's term Reagan three, or did Bush and James A. Baker build something distinct that helped bring about this post-Cold War world we live in? They were determined not to be Reagan three. They were determined to review the foreign policy and see if there was a new way forward. And to that point, they started a review of foreign policy, which went on for four months. That is January 21, right through till May 12, much to the irritation of the Soviet leader who said, haven't you made up your mind? And the French and the British leaders also were saying, you don't need this much time to develop a new foreign policy. But yes, they did. Because in the GOP in the late 19, in the early 1990s, late 1980s, the conservatives had brought significant pressure to bear upon the president. It was a pressure which said, Reagan, you have been romantic in your relationship with Gorbachev. Bush, You've got to be a realist and pragmatist with the Soviets. Don't fall for his charm. And so Bush and Baker faced this conservative pressure within the Republican Party, which was pushing them to be hardline with Gorbachev. But Baker was also seeing the opportunity to make arrangements with Gorbachev and recognizing the weakness, the growing disintegration of the Soviets to reach the end of a 40-year Cold War. So domestic political considerations, of course, you know, just as Gorbachev was dealing with domestic pressures within the Soviet Union and, you know, pressures to, with the reforms he was making, Certainly, uh, that was having a pressure on the American presidency as well. 
That's right. Take Central America. Reagan had sought to win Central America by supporting militarily the Salvadoran government. And Congress had sought to restrain uh, Reagan by imposing the Boland Amendment, Boland Amendment 1, Boland Amendment 2, which denied Reagan the right to support with funds and military aid the, the Salvadorian armed forces. So what happens? Ollie North decides he's going to be clever and he's going to go to the Iranians and sell them equipment. And with the money that he gains from the Iranians, pass through the Israelis, he'll use that to support Reagan's people, namely the Contras, the conservatives in Nicaragua. It was a crazy, illegal deal, and it fell through. But it fell upon Bush after Reagan to clean up the mess. And was that difficult for the Bush administration, considering, you know, Bush was part of the Reagan administration, part of the apparatus that Oliver North was working with him? Well, there are two convenient aspects. The CIA director, Bill Casey, conveniently died. Ollie North was left alone there together with the NSC advisor. But with a change in president, there is a change in NSC advisor. So new team and the CIA guy in another world. So an opportunity to state actually pretty accurately, I never knew. And based on that, Baker and Bush decided to seek a negotiated end to the civil war in Salvador and to accept UN supervision of an election in Nicaragua, which no one thought the Democrats would win, that is the Nicaraguan Democrats would win, but with international observers, the Nicaraguan Democrats led by Violeta Chamorro won. And so there was really an opportunity to bring about peace through negotiation and diplomacy. So that's going on in Central America, right at America's next door neighbors. But then also on the other side of the world, you have in China events like Tiananmen Square occurring at the same time. How is that met inside of the Bush White House with Baker and how does that affect America's engagement with the Chinese in this new administration? The build-up to Tiananmen had started in March, and students and workers were pressing for greater freedoms and found within the, the Communist Party leaders who were sympathetic to them. So there was a building-up tension between the traditional leadership and the reform wing to the point that ABC and NBC had their chief foreign correspondents in Beijing on the night of June the 4th. And why it was such an important event for us is we watched it 
on television. We watch those young students be mowed down, that single individual who stood in front of the tank. And surely the tank would stop. But no, those soldiers driving those tanks had come from other parts of China. They had no sympathy. They had no knowledge of the students and workers in this big square, somewhat similar to us on the Mall, the Smithsonian in front of the White House. And so when that occurred and was covered by NBC and ABC directly on our televisions in our kitchens, there was horror. And Congress rose up and said, you have to impose sanctions. You've got to stop dealing with the Chinese leadership. President Bush sought to talk with his good friend, Deng Xiaoping. And so he called him up on the telephone, but got no answer. And Bush was astounded that no world leader would refuse to talk to the President of the United States, and he knew Deng Xiaoping well. He had hosted him in Houston, and he was amazed that no Chinese leader would take his call because he had not been advised that Chinese leaders never interact, dialogue with a foreign leader unless they know what the foreign leader is going to say, they know what the foreign leader is going to demand, and they have a Chinese response that is agreed upon. None of that existed in those early days of June 1989, when President Bush sought to talk to Deng Xiaoping. So let's move back to Europe then. Uh, a lot going on, obviously, in this little four-year period. You have this incredibly complicated reunification of Germany going on and dealing with European allies and a possible NATO expansions. And this had ramifications and still does with our relationship with Russia, even to today. So explain that to us. In 1988 to 1989, there was turmoil in Eastern Europe. The Poles were rebelling against the authority, the totalitarian rule. The Hungarians were marching in the street. The East German, the uh, Christian communities, the Lutheran church took to the streets every Monday in protests against um, their chief, Hernicker. And so in all this turmoil, Washington was wondering, will the Soviets send back the tanks as they did in 1968 and 1981? Will the repression be pushed upon the people of Eastern Europe? So they watched very carefully and there were those in the administration who advised the president, stand back, watch, take no action. But Baker was more of a risk taker on this believing that Gorbachev was a different kind of leader and therefore less likely to send in the tanks. But the French and the British were also very cautious of what Gorbachev 
and the Soviet intention really was. So there was stress within the transatlantic relationship. However, the West German Chancellor, Chancellor Helmut Kohl, was determined that this presented, this liberal moment, this moment for, for freedom prevent, presented an opportunity to reunite the two parts of Germany, Eastern Germany, West Germany, which had been divided at the end of World War II. If there was an opportunity to unite, he would do it. Even though those in his financial sectors were saying, this is going to be very expensive. But Kohl saw it as an opportunity, historical moment, and President Bush and Secretary Baker supported him. They recognized that a united Germany, a future economic powerhouse in the center of Europe, could act as a strong ally with the United States and as a stalwart against the Soviet Union. So both Bush and Baker moved to persuade the British, Margaret Thatcher, the French, Francois Mitterrand, to accept a united Germany. But, and here is the big difficulty for the Soviets, that economic powerhouse in the center of Europe needed to be anchored in an alliance, a Western alliance, a transatlantic alliance, namely NATO. Because then there would be no temptation for Germany to have its own nuclear capability. But for Gorbachev, the prospect of East Germany the industrial crown of the Warsaw Pact, dropping the Warsaw Pact and entering NATO was an anathema. So the negotiations take place to persuade Gorbachev that the Soviets would be safer and the Western alliance would be safer if Germany, a united Germany, was anchored in NATO. Baker is the one who carries out those negotiations. They're difficult. And he may have made an offer which subsequent US governments couldn't keep. So there is a lingering accusation in Russia today that Baker broke his word because Baker, in his meeting with Gorbachev, said, if Germany is united and situated in NATO, NATO will not move one inch further east. Now, what Baker meant at that time was only East Germany enters NATO, not the other East European nations. But subsequently, under President Clinton and with Secretary Albright, NATO expanded eastward into Hungary, into Czechoslovakia, into Romania, into Poland. 
Baker did not think about that. Think about those other East European countries when he met on February the 9th, 1990 with Gorbachev. But the Russians remember, and it has remained a meeting which has allowed the Russians to propagate stories or propaganda that Americans don't keep their word. Baker kept his word, but his words were misinterpreted in a different context. And I don't think we can really have a discussion about this period without talking about Iraq and Desert Storm, which there's a lot of criticism of Bush and Baker for the decision to defeat Iraq and leave it weakened, a weakened military, but to not remove Saddam Hussein or to quote unquote, finish the job as some people would say in, in years that would come. What was the thought process there uh, with, with Iraq and Desert Storm on Baker's part? Baker set out to mobilize a coalition which included the Soviet Union, the patron of Saddam Hussein. The coalition was Egypt, Saudis, and the Gulf states, as well as the European and the Japanese and the Latin Americans, to repel Saddam Hussein. But in mobilizing that coalition, he and Bush were very clear. Our purpose is to reject Saddam Hussein from Kuwait, full stop. It is not to remove Saddam Hussein from power. And having completed the task of defeating the Iraqi army in a matter of hours and leaving them desolate on that road back to Baghdad, Baker and Bush kept their word. While others have said, why didn't you go and complete the job as you're telling me? They said, we formed this coalition with an understanding and a commitment and we're keeping to it. The question that I ask myself is, why didn't Baker focus on strengthening the Gulf Security Institution, the Gulf Council, so that any future activity by Saddam Hussein could be constrained by the neighbors? Why didn't he seek a regional observe, observation and if not constraint on Saddam Hussein? But Baker had made another promise and Baker and Bush kept to their word, their promises. And that promise was to get the Israeli and the Palestinians to negotiate for peace. And so with the end of that Iraq war, the withdrawal of American troops, except in certain zones in the north, Baker turned the page on Iraq and turned the page on the Gulf. And it came back to haunt him, of course, when in 2002 and two, 2002, the belief was that chemical weapons might be still in Iraq. And then the 2003 March assault by the Americans 
that second Iraq war. And had the Baker-Bush team focused more on building up a regional security, this might not have happened. There's so much to pack into this. Uh, and the rest of it, I guess I'll just have to read in your book, which is Master Negotiator. Um, so I want to ask one final question, though. This is just in the last 20, 25 minutes, we have talked about crises and situations that Baker and Bush had to deal with all over the world. And this is a lot to pack into a one-term presidency, four years. So why don't Bush and Baker get as much credit for facing down these challenges and really creating the world that we inherit today of this post-Cold War, even though it's had its fits and starts, and certainly there are criticisms like you have pointed out. But why is it that we don't seem to remember this four-year period for the ones who were at the helm? You started this conversation talking about Reagan, a charismatic figure, a master communicator. And after eight years of Reagan, we got four more years with Republican leadership. And the country as a whole said, let's give the other party a chance. 12 years of Republican leadership and these wars, but what about us? What about the American economy and the problems we face every day? And so Bush lost. Um, I think it was probably inevitable. But when a president loses, there's less fascination until you look into what he accomplished during those four years. And his great accomplishment is that he brought an end to a Cold War. He saw the disintegration of the Soviet Union. He ensured that the nuclear weapons and nuclear material stationed throughout the Soviet Union, but principally in Belarus, Ukraine, and Kazakhstan, was safety, safely contained and held in a place which could be observed by the West. There was no violence at the end of the Cold War. There was minimum violence when the Soviet Union disintegrated and the Soviet flag came down at the end of December 1991 and a new flag, a Russian flag, with a Russian leader, Boris Yeltsin, went up. And that took place in an environment of peace and an environment where countries recognize the advantages of liberal democracy. Well, we want everybody to go and read this book. I, I, I am a firm believer that really the best analysis of presidential administrations is going to come out 20 to 30 years after that administration is over. And so here we are, about 30 years, and, uh, and Diana Villers-Negroponte has produced Master Negotiator James A. Baker's role at the end of the Cold War. We've gotten a little taste of it. You can tell she is a great storyteller. Get this book, take a look at what she's got here because there's other things that we weren't able to get to in this time. 
Diana, always a pleasure to talk to you. And a pleasure for me, Aaron. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you did, we hope you will like, subscribe, maybe even leave a comment. And of course, be sure to check out International History Declassified, put on by our Cold War experts. They bring our archives to life. For the Western Hemisphere interests, we have the America's 360 podcast, the Brazil Institute podcast, To The Point, and the Argentina Project podcast. Check them out at wilsoncenter.org slash podcasts.